Welcome to episode 201 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is the Objects to Observe in the March 2022 Night Sky Edition. I am Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. So were you able to get under the stars this week, Shane? No, I was not. Um, you know, our weather remains the same. Although Friday night, there was an opportunity to go out like it was relatively clear. Um, I don't think conditions were outstanding by any stretch, but no. uh, the the issue for me was the work week caught up to me and I was exhausted Friday night, so I did not go out. How about you? Yeah, no, I ended up having a phone conversation with uh, our, our observing friend, Mike, and just chatting about uh, setting up our, our observing for the next uh, several months. So, you know, that was good. Yeah, he had been wondering if I was going out, but I don't know. Like I don't, maybe I have more clouds over my house or on this side of town or what, I don't know. Cause, cause he, he asked if I was going out and I kind of looked up and I could see a few stars, but, but there was uh like broken high cumulus cloud overhead. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was, I, I wasn't going out. So eh, anyway, so uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's maybe review, you know, I started putting some bullet uh, notes in here about uh you know, just some general introductory stuff to astronomy. I think we did this last month too, but uh, yeah, what are, what are some good ways for people to get started in astronomy and some really quick tools and techniques we can just give people for general advice before we hop into what people can see in the night sky this month? Uh, yeah. So maybe, maybe the first thing I'll mention is a bit of a carryover from episode 200 when we spoke with Mary McIntyre. Um, Probably one of the best things to state is that to do astronomy, you really don't need any equipment. You can just use your eyes. Um, If you happen to have a pair of binoculars in your home, those can be used as well at night to show you a lot of uh, interesting things. So the key takeaway to that point really is just don't think like you certainly don't need hundreds or thousands of dollars worth of astronomy gear to enjoy the night sky. Um, some uh, Some of the stuff that we'll talk about you know, we'll probably mention degrees. Um, and this is a measurement superimposed onto the night sky that help us determine how far certain things are from each other. Um, and one, um, kind of, you know, guide that applies to pretty much all of us is if you hold your fist out at arm's length, your fist, the width of your fist is about 10 degrees, uh, against the night sky. And, and because we're all built proportionately, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you have long arms or short arms or anything like that, chances are when you hold that fist out, it's going to be about 10 degrees. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I'll actually echo your your remarks there on what uh, Mary McIntyre was saying. And I know this, this episode is going out on the uh, 365 days of astronomy um, as well. I know we get a lot more people tuning in for the objects to observe. But um, if, if you're one of those people that are just grabbing these episodes I strongly recommend that you go um, and take a listen to our episode 200 with Mary McIntyre because she talks about um, uh, observing, just looking at the stars. She talks about astrophotography. She talks about public outreach. She talks about being involved in the UK Meteor Network. Um, A lot of different really interesting topics. I got to think there's pretty much something there for everybody in that last episode that we just recorded. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mary has a, uh, you know, as in general, astronomy is definitely, you know, one of her big passions and and within astronomy, she does an awful lot of things that are, are really cool and, and, you know, very accessible to any amateur. 
Yeah. And, uh, and as well, like what you said about, um, you know, her, her mention of not needing anything uh, super fancy uh, to do any of those aspects. And she kind of goes into a surprising amount of detail considering we, we covered all of those topics. Uh, but she did mention like, you know, just taking the binoculars out, getting in her nice warm blanket, getting in the recliner and just kind of getting lost in the night sky. Uh, I thought was uh, a really great uh, introduction for people that are looking just, just to get going. I mean, you can just do that and not, uh, not really get too caught up in uh in, in the pressure of trying to trying to learn too much or trying to do too much on the night sky that can just be really relaxing way to spend an evening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, some other resources include things like night watch, um, which is a book by Terrence Dickinson, um, really good for Northern hemisphere people who are just looking to get started. Uh, and as well, like make yourself a little red light to preserve your night vision because your cell phone is, is probably too bright. Um, if you're going out under dark skies and, uh, and then as well, like even the lights on the cell phones are way, way too bright for uh, what, what you're going to need when you're doing astronomy. And then you can use averted vision. So what's, what's averted vision, Shane? When you don't look directly at an object. So when, when we say to use averted vision, what we're really saying is get, get your desired object in the field of view, but then look out, try to observe it with your peripheral vision. Um, our, the way our eyes are, um, our, our peripherals are a little more sensitive to light, uh, and movement. So using your peripherals, sometimes you can tease out a little more detail or sometimes fainter objects can become somewhat visible, uh, using that technique. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, let's jump in. Uh, let's jump into March. What is, what's the, what does March open with? What's, what's a good thing to start the month of March with for us this month, Shane? Um, well, March for, for folks, um, I don't know if this is also a Southern hemisphere thing or not, but for sure in the Northern hemisphere, um, the Messier marathon is, um, something that captivates a lot of amateur astronomers, um, early in March or, or kind of around new moon is when you're able to observe nearly all of the Messier objects in one night. If you're, if you're well-organized and you start pretty much right at sunset and observe till sunrise, uh, you're able to get, uh, I think most of them in now it is quite challenging to get all 110. Um, I know Chris, you've attempted this before and I can't remember what your, your maximum was. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's 110 objects. And I think, uh, myself and my observing partner, Graham, uh, we, uh, we were able to get like about 103, like working together, like we kind of worked as, as a team. And, uh, I think uh, he ended up hunting down about 60 odd or 70 odd I ended down about whatever it was around 35 or so um so yeah but then in a few weeks we're going to dive uh, into this in more detail eh? yeah exactly uh we're gonna have Don McColtz on he's going to talk about the Messier marathon he's one of the originators of uh of this concept and uh yeah really looking forward to his conversation we're also going to put that one out I believe on the 365 days of astronomy so looking forward to that yeah that'll be awesome yeah we also have the uh Zodiacal light is well visible, uh, starting, uh, right now, actually, in fact, uh, end of February and into March and the dark sky in March and early part of, uh, April, we're going to have, uh, this band of luminous light. That's uh, sort of in between kind of sort of like the inner part of the solar system in between, uh, I guess it's like Mars and Jupiter. And a lot of that dust, uh, apparently, comes from uh, Mars, but they don't quite understand how, how it is originating from Mars. Um, but Melody, who's on the observing committee, and I sit on the observing committee uh, here in Canada, and uh, she has uh, has sent out recently a, a great photo. I think her husband took it 
Um, but he sent out this, or she sent out this photo that he took showing this, uh, this beautiful band of light there, Shane. And she said we could tweet it out. So I think we just need to uh, make sure we credit her husband. I think her husband's name is Bruce. So Okie dokie. Yeah. <laughs> um, definitely on Twitter, I've seen a lot of zodiacal light photos uh, the last few days. In fact, uh, again, Mary McIntyre, who was just on our last episode, uh, she captured a, a really nice photo of it as well from the UK. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. I was looking at, uh, did you ever look at Alan Dyer's website? Alan Dyer is one of the uh, co-authors of the uh, Backyard Astronomer's Guide. Did you ever go on his website and, and check that out? Uh, not that often. Um, I usually like, uh, again, I follow Alan on Twitter and he tweets out a lot of his activity, but no, I, right. I normally don't end up at his website. Oh yeah. Well, that's probably where a lot of this stuff, uh, originates from. He, uh, he has some like good synopsis of, of what you can see, uh, each, you know, each month, uh, and on his website, he talks about how, uh, March represents, uh, really the beginning of Aurora season. So he's looking forward to do something, uh, some Aurora photography. So, you know, I guess we might, uh, might be looking forward to some Aurora in the coming uh, months here. Yeah. The, the activity on the sun is definitely ramping up and the direct result of that is more Aurora for us to observe. Um, you know, it's a blessing and a curse for us, dark sky observers. It's quite pretty, but it can sometimes ruin a dark sky observing session because it can be so bright that it really washes out the sky. And, you know, you and I have been in really dark locations when the Aurora comes in and when, when it's really bright, it's it, like the sky almost resembles like an urban setting, you know, yeah. like the stars disappear almost like they do under a light polluted sky. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can you can go from being like seeing, uh, you know, magnitude six and a half stars to uh, down to fourth magnitude. I, I've seen that on a number of occasions. It, it just kind of obliterates uh, any of the fainter stars. You can barely see the Milky Way that was, you know, earlier maybe in the evening standing out. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of one of those things. And I guess, you know, it makes sense. The other thing he put in there was that uh, we get into the flashing geostationary satellite season as well, because, you know, the angle of the earth is changing and the angles. Uh, that the sun is going to be hitting those uh, geostationary satellites uh, in turn changes. So uh, sometimes you get these brief and very bright flashes from the geostationary satellites and look, look a little weird, like kind of like you're being winked at from, from space. I don't know if you've ever noticed those much before. I don't know if I've ever seen one before. Um, no, I, that's a lie. I have seen a couple um, where there's just a brightening in the sky and it's like a star appears and then disappears almost. It's, it's quite unique. Yeah. I had a email here this morning, Dave, Dave Chapman, who's been on the show before and a frequent uh, friend and correspondent of the show. He, uh, he'd sent in a sketch of, uh, I think it was uh, Venus, Mars and the moon this morning, um, you know, sort of a hanging around a tree, um, you know, that was in front of a hill by his house, but uh, yeah, really cool. And then all month we're going to have Venus, Mars, Mercury, and Saturn playing around in the morning twilight should be uh, kind of pretty in, in these mornings. I've been, I've been watching Venus a little bit just with my unaided eye and, uh, you know, can see uh, some of the other planets from time to time if I get into the right spot. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, uh, I've seen Venus a number of times in the morning this week, you know, on, on the way to work as well as the moon. It's been quite pretty. Um it's been weird too. Like when, when I've been going to bed, it's been cloudy in the mornings, like around sunrise, it's been not too bad. You know, the yeah. skies have been okay. Yeah. Cool. 
Uh, March 2nd, sort of getting getting into the, the days of the month now. March 2nd, we're going to have uh, the new moon. But that morning of March 2nd, if you get up early, and I think I have uh, 6 a.m.-ish, between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m., depending on where you are, as is probably about the best time to see this. That's when uh, Mercury is going to be um, just about 0.7 degrees south of Saturn in the morning sky. So that could be uh, kind of neat to see if you can get your telescope. They're, they're going to be really close to the horizon, though. Hmm. What, what's really nice about that um, is Saturn will be easy to locate naked eye-ish. It'll be easy-ish. Um, Mercury is a little tougher. And the fact that Mercury, Mercury will be so close to Saturn makes it a, you know, a, a good attempt. Like if you've never seen Mercury or you'd like to try to observe it, um, having Saturn as that anchor point will, uh, will certainly assist you that morning. Yeah. Cool. And then on the 6th and 7th of March, we're going to have the crescent moon, uh, coming up in the, in the West. Um, cause we, after the new moon, we get into the, um, you know, sort of first early phases of the next lunar cycle. And that's when the moon starts appearing in the Western sky at first, uh, just makes a brief appearance in, in the dusk. And then eventually it starts moving into the, the darker skies, which is, which is when it's going to be, uh, pairing up with Uranus around the sixth and seventh. So that's, uh, one of those things I always like to highlight for people because makes it, um, uh, very easy to track down. Uh, some of the more difficult uh, celestial bodies, in this case, Uranus, is going to be very close to the moon on the 6th and 7th, because Uranus is only about magnitude 5.7, which is uh, visible from uh, from a really light polluted sky through binoculars. Um, but it's difficult to track down which star up there is Uranus when you're just kind of sort of panning around the sky, or even if you have a chart. But on the 6th and 7th of March, uh, Uranus is going to be quite close uh, to the moon there. So uh, sort of one of the brighter stars that you're going to see near the moon, uh, that's going to be Uranus on those nights. Do you ever do that? Do you ever try to hunt down Uranus when it's paired up with the moon chain? Yeah, well, I, I like those close arrangements when whether it's the moon and the planets or multiple planets together. Um, those are always really neat things to observe. I, I like them because um, not only are, you know, does it help you find the object, but it is just quite pretty through uh, binoculars or telescopes usually. Yeah. And that'll make a good segue to March 8th, the mm. following day is when the moon is going to be sitting between the uh, Pleiades and the Hyades. And so that's, uh, that was happening last month as well, I believe. And, uh, so what you're seeing here is, is the moon kind of sweeping across the night sky, sort of from night to night to night. And on March 8th, it's going to sit between these two, um, two of the most famous or most prominent, easy to see open clusters in the night sky, which are the uh, Pleiades or the Messier 45, M45 open cluster and the Hyades, which is a large open cluster, um, which basically forms the head of Taurus, the bull. And the moon's going to be sitting right between them. So if you're somebody that's maybe just learning the sky, um, you can use the moon on certain nights to kind of point out stars or or planets or uh, different star patterns, or in this case, a couple open clusters. Yeah. And, and that'll be close to Zenith, which means like right overhead, um, which is not fun with a telescope. It's sometimes hard with the movement of telescopes to, to observe right overhead. Um, but both of those clusters are phenomenal through binoculars. And the fact that the moon is there, um, you know, it makes it a pretty cool opportunity if you have binoculars because binoculars to use when uh, to look at objects right overhead is just, I find it a lot easier than a telescope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, if you sit in the reclining chair and 
Yeah, get into that blanket. Yeah, it makes a perfect uh, combination. On March 12th, we have the lunar straight wall. That evening, it's going to be uh, visible on the uh, on the lunar surface. So you've observed the lunar straight wall a few times before. I've, I think maybe you showed it to me once. I think that's when I've seen it. I'm not as much of a lunar observer as you are. But uh, any any hints for people uh, trying to take a look for the lunar straight wall there, Shane? Um, I've only looked at it through a telescope. I'm I'm not sure if binoculars would be enough power to see this. Um, but uh, if you do have a telescope, put it on uh, the moon on March the 12th and, or sorry, uh, yeah, March 12th. Um, it, it's a pretty hard object to miss. It's very, like, it's quite large in relation to, you know, a lot of the smaller craters and, and other features to see. Um, and, and the moon is, you know, a very chaotic place or a very chaotic surface. Like there's just there, you know, there's craters, there's ridges, there's plains, there's all sorts of stuff going on there. Um, and all of a sudden there's this, you know, what appears to be pretty much a perfectly straight black line. Uh, so it really stands out from all of the unevenness and, and strangeness of the moon. And, um, that night it's, it's going to be a pretty hard object to miss. Yeah, I'm just trying to look it up here and yeah, you probably would need some powerful binoculars. Like I know, there's some 20 and 25 power binoculars out there. They would probably begin to show up, but just the regular mm-hmm. handhelds. I think you're right. That would be uh, a pretty difficult feat. Yeah. Yeah. Telescope would probably be the better choice there. Or like you said, Chris, unless, uh, or if you have some higher powered binoculars, that would probably do it, but uh, most likely you'll need a telescope. Yeah. Uh, on March 12th also, uh, you know, if you get up early that morning, um, I guess I should have put this first, but uh, early on the morning of March 12th, Venus is going to be just above Mars and they're, they're going to be in conjunction there. So they're going to be very, very close together. I forget the exact distances, but it's uh, it's super close in the nighttime in the morning sky. And again, this is another one of those anchor moments. Venus will be quite bright. Mars, not as much. And this is one of the years of Mars. This is the opposition year. So uh, in December, Mars will be at its closest point to Earth. Um, and this is a two-year event. Um, so from this point forward, Mars will just continue to get closer, which means a little bit brighter and a little bit bigger. But um, at this point in time, it's still not any, you know, it, it's going to be, you know, fairly small. I wouldn't uh, expect a lot of detail, if any, on Mars, but it's still a neat observation to see two planets that close. Yeah, I think uh, December 8th or around that day is when Mars is uh, going to be at opposition. So just starting to um, come into the darker sky. And I don't know that you'd be able to see much detail on it now through a telescope, but uh in, in the coming, uh, you know, summer months and, and especially into fall, mm-hmm. uh, that that's when you'll get your best views of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. On the March 18th, we're going to have the full moon. So that's something people, uh, can mark in their calendars and, and maybe go and take a look at it. I don't know if it's one of the super moons or any, any sort of special moon in any way, but, uh, that's when, that's when the full moon is, is going to happen. So, I'm looking at taking a couple of days off. I'm not going to take them off around that time. I'm going to wait for dark sky at the end of the month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For, for dark sky chasers, a full moon is a bad thing. Um, again, similar to my comment about the Aurora, a full moon will make a dark sky very similar to um, an urban sky. Yeah. And uh, in fact, not even a, like a, a quarter to, to like a half illuminated moon um, almost washes out the entire sky as well. So um, 
you know, it's, it's a bright, bright object. And when it's full, um, there's still a lot to observe. And I've been rightfully accused of, of, you know, <laughs> of, of saying the moon's boring when it's full. And, and that's not true. There's, a, yeah. there's an awful lot there. Yeah. I think, uh, I think Mark Ricci or somebody like that called you out on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was a good call out because yeah, there's, there is a lot to see there. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. Yeah. One of the things you can see on, on the full moon when it's, um, uh, you know, nice and clear out is it's called the Turby white spot, which is in sort of like the bottom, just kind of left of center. There's, there's a brighter spot there. Now, sometimes people think it's a crater, but it's, it's not, it's sort of, um, uh, like a bit of an optical illusion or something like that. It's in what's called an albedo feature. It's just a bunch of different areas that are a little bit brighter than the rest of the surface, but it really sticks out as, as sort of a brightish, um, spot on the moon. Yeah. Well, and, and you and I have talked about this before, Chris, but sometimes like you can see some color in the moon, sometimes, you know, shades of brownish, maybe even purple tones at times. Um, so that's another thing to kind of pay attention to. Like there's a ton of craters and surface features to, uh, to observe, but you know, always, always pay attention to the color and just how that may change from night to night to night or month to month to month. Mm-hmm. Then on uh, March 20th, we have uh, a couple things taking place. Um, March 20th is also going to be the, the date of the spring equinox. So what is what is the spring equinox or equinox, Shane? Um, I believe that's when the uh, daylight and, and nighttime are are equal. Is that not right? Like 12 hours that's, each, yeah. I believe. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's, totally, that's equal day and night. That's what equinox yeah. Uh, means. So yeah, that's just when we... Uh, reach that point in the Earth's orbit around the sun when when our tilt is such that we're getting uh, equal day and night, no matter where you are on the surface of the Earth. And then, of course, uh, that's the day that we lament because we start losing the dark skies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's it's a double edged sword. You know, our our cold winters are leaving us, but so are the uh, long hours of darkness. <laughs> yeah, and by the time we get to uh, about uh, June first, around our parts here. Um, we actually really don't even get much in the way of darkness at all, uh, for about a, a five or a six week period from, from about the first of, of June ish until the, uh, about the end of the first week of, of July, we get, uh, we get not a whole lot of, lot of darkness there. Right? Yeah. We're just far enough North that it, the sun just kind of dips below the horizon and, uh, you know, it, it just never gets fully dark throughout the night. Yeah. Yeah. It's too bad. Uh, but on March 20th as well, if you get up early that morning, you can see Venus at greatest Western elongation. So that uh, Western elongation means it's in the morning. Now it doesn't mean that it's going to be highest in the sky though. Cause I think it was highest, uh, in, in the morning sky the other day, um, here at the end of February, but, uh, but that just means that it's uh, it's at its greatest point away from the sun. So it's still going to be visible um, well above the horizon in the morning sky. But certainly after that date, I think it gets uh, gets a little little bit lower progressively as, as the days go by. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then on the 26th of March, we have the Lunar Curtis X visible. I still haven't tracked this one down. Have you seen the lunar Curtis X before? <laughs> no, I, I have to be honest. The lunar Curtis X is new to me. Um, yeah. I was just going to tape, tape it in here. I think I, it, it's sort of um, one of those features 
that's visible in and around the same time as the uh, as the lunar X, but it comes, uh, like I said, just a few days later because we I think that the lunar X um, is visible in some parts of the world, uh, but it's not as visible in North America this month. But we have the the lunar Curtis X visible, but I think the lunar Curtis X has a greater visibility. But anyway, March 26th, Shane, if you want to go take a look, that's the night to take a look at it. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking online. I think it is also referenced as the Curtis Cross on the moon. Mm. And uh, if anybody is interested in in searching for some details, Curtis is C-U-R-T-I-S-S. Oh, two S's. Yeah, two S's. I'm seeing a lot of references to. So Hmm. um, yeah, I've never seen that one before. I will add that to my list. Yeah, I'll have to take take a look for that. Kind of an interesting thing that's... uh, often noted i think it's uh i think it's a little bit larger than the uh than the lunar x uh that we've often oh, okay. seen in the past so yeah uh moving ahead on march uh, 27th and 28th there's a really neat moon and planetary triangle i i also saw this on uh ellen dyer's website where we have venus saturn uh and mars um together and then just sort of off to the right we have this crescent moon uh that's i think going to make a really interesting uh image if people are looking for a really nice uh portrait of of three planets uh, i guess plus the earth's horizon and then then the moon in the morning sky i think that's going to be a pretty cool uh pretty picture to see yeah that would be really neat yeah and let's see then on march 29th venus is going to be about two degrees away from saturn so uh, venus is going to just be two degrees north of saturn and uh, so that makes them pretty close uh in the night sky so that should be a a very pretty picture uh to see as well yeah and and two degrees so that's well within pretty much any binocular field of view And uh, most telescopes um, will achieve that as well. Um, Now, if you have maybe a larger Newtonian or a slower focal length uh, telescope, two degrees might be a bit of a push. But uh, for the most part, I think uh, a lot of amateur telescopes will get that in one field of view. Yep. Yeah, should be should be pretty neat to see uh, in binoculars. I I would head out with binoculars for this one just because... um, yeah, they're going to be pretty low down, so you won't see much detail. But yeah, if you do have a telescope, anything smaller than uh, than about a six inch should should give you a two degree field. So yeah, mm-hmm. that should be that should be a pretty nice field uh, to see those those two planets close together in the night in the morning sky. Uh, let's see comets. We have a couple of comets. I was I was reading about these uh, these two comets. We have comet uh, L three Atlas, which is around ninth magnitude. I was seeing. Um, I was looking last night at some sketches. Just have to be looking at sketches. And uh, even though I made these notes up long before that, people were submitting sketches of L three Atlas, saying it looked really good in like uh, you know telescopes that are about eight inches or larger, and it's right in around the uh, bottom uh, foot of uh, of of uh, Gemini. Should be easy to locate. Um, those are, you know, that's a fairly prominent constellation certainly would need a a telescope. And like you said, uh, probably a a bit of a larger telescope around eight inches or or more. And yeah, that hopefully, um, hopefully some people are, are able to observe that comets are always interesting. One of the things about comets is they're usually never the same thing twice. Excuse me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Go go ahead, ahead, Chris. 
Okay. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, I know you're, you're exactly right there. And I thought you might need it to grab a drink of water. And, uh, and yeah, we have, uh, we have lots of uh, sketches starting to come in of Atlas. And uh, even though like oftentimes like a ninth magnitude comet isn't something to write home about uh, people have been sketching like a bit of a coma and a tail, like, although it's faint, there's, there's a lot of detail there. So if people are going out and they have, uh, you know, like I said, about an eight inch or larger telescope, uh, a lot of people are really uh, saying, uh, boy, it's, it's well worth hunting down because there's more detail there than typically you would have in a ninth magnitude comet. Oh, very cool. Yeah. The one thing I noticed, I, I was sort of going through this and uh, just the way I lined up my software is that uh, around the 26th of March, uh, Comet 19P Borelli um, is going to be passing by the California Nebula. And then I noticed that in the software, it actually forecasted it to be uh, much brighter than it is right now. It's coming in at ninth magnitude now as well, um, but it's going to pass right by the California Nebula there on on or, on or, or near the 26th of, uh, of March. So if you have uh, astronomy software, most people that have eight inch and larger telescopes that are going to be interested in this um, probably are, are going to have astronomy planetarium software and just kind of run it around that date um, for your location and then see what works best for you. But it'd be really cool if somebody took a photo of uh, Comet Borelli and the California Nebula. That'd be really neat up in Perseus. Yeah, that would be phenomenal. Um, I wonder what the moonrise and set times are that night because that would be uh, that would be fun to observe that under a dark sky as well, like visually, uh, just to see what it looks like. I think a moon would would probably ruin it if the moon's in the sky the whole night. But if we can get out uh, when the moon is not there, I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, that's about a week past. Uh, actually, just over a week. It's eight days past full moon, mm-hmm. so the moon will be in the morning sky uh, by that point in time. And because this is up in Perseus and Perseus. Um, mm-hmm. it is, is pretty high all night here anyway. Um, yeah. In, in we the evening. Have. Yeah. You yeah. should be able should be able to get that in the evening. So don't have to get up in the morning like we were for, uh, for the, uh, the last comet. So yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Awesome. All right. How about, uh, did you, did you find any minor planets? Worth uh, no, I did not. Did you? No, I was, uh, I was kind of looking to see if any were at opposition that were worth looking at and there just weren't any Nothing. that were, um, coming up. And I didn't know if you had any double stars, you might, uh, be looking to take a observation of this month, Shane. Yeah. Um, I, I'll, I'll talk about a, a constellation that doesn't get a lot of fanfare, uh, which is Lynx. Uh, in fact, you and I haven't even really talked too much about this constellation, uh, but there's some interesting, uh, multiple star systems to take a look at. One of them is uh, known as 19 links or the uh, Struve catalog number is uh, 1062. Uh, it's actually a, a quad system. There's, there's four stars there that, that are all connected um, gravitationally. And, you know, we call them double stars, but sometimes there's more than just two stars there to observe. Um, they're all within reach of, of, of most amateur backyard telescopes. They're, um, the separation is pretty, like, it's not very tight. So splitting them shouldn't be a, a real challenge. Um, the thing that I will say though, there's four stars there. Chances are most people will only see three. Um, the, the C companion is, is quite faint. It's magnitude 12.8. So that one likely isn't reachable, but if you have a little bit larger of a telescope, probably in that, uh, you know, probably 10 to 12 inch range that that's quite doable. Uh, the other one is Alpha Lynx, or 
the STT catalog number is 571. Um, there's three stars here. Again, the, the third star, the C companion is, is kind of dim. It's magnitude 11.1, but, uh, again, it's, it's visible in most amateur telescopes. Um, what, what is really cool about this system is that, uh, you have two contrasting star colors here. So the AB stars, uh, which would be fairly easy in, in most backyard, in probably all backyard telescopes, actually, um, one is orange and one is blue. So at low power, cause the separation is fairly large on these, uh, at low power, you'll have them in the same, uh, field of view. And whenever you get two stars that are somewhat close together that have different colors, uh, they really seem to um, stand out. The, the, the ability to compare and contrast the two colors seems um, stronger than if it was just, say, one orange star by itself. So uh, to be able to see these two stars uh, uh, fairly close together is, is pretty cool. And that's yeah. it for doubles. Yeah, cool. You know, if you're up in links, one of the neat things to take a look at, I don't know if you've ever looked at this before, I, I have a few times, is uh, it's a globular cluster called NGC 2419, also known as the Caldwell 25 object. Uh, it was discovered by William Herschel in 1788, just, just sort of looking that bit up. But I knew, knew it was up there because I've looked at it. It was once thought to be um, sort of wandering in amongst the galaxies, thought to be uh, the intergalactic wanderer. Um, was what it was called because it was so far out of the plane of the Milky Way. It was since uh, discovered that, that that wasn't the case, but uh, it's a ninth magnitude globular. So it's a little bit on the faint side again, probably best in telescopes larger than eight inches, but uh, yeah, you can really uh, get a look at a globular cluster that's really far away from the plane of, of the Milky Way. Like typically uh, globulars are going to be sort of uh, hovering around in close to the Milky Way, but this one is uh, is pretty far offside and sort of in the realm of the galaxies. So anyway, just kind of makes an interesting object uh, to look at. Yeah, you know, and what's kind of neat about that is is again, Lynx doesn't get talked about a lot in in, in astronomical or at least in amateur uh, conversations, but there's still a lot to see there. You know the the, uh, the sky is full of a lot of cool objects and, um, you know, pull out any, any of the lists and you're probably going to find some, some interesting stuff to take a look at. Cool. Well, that sounds like a great place for us to wrap up, Shane, unless you have anything else to add. No, that's everything, Chris. All right. Well, I'll thank everybody for listening. Thank you, Shane, for joining me. And everybody, if you can, please uh, subscribe, like, and send us a review in, uh, in your podcast feeds. Thanks again for listening. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.